Hey guys, it's, uh, it's good to see you today. We've got a bonus week happening here this morning. If, uh, if you're new with us here today, we've just finished up a 40-week run through 40 New Testament passages that are just like so vitally important for us to know. And next week, we've got this like epic Pentecost celebration that that's hovering just seven days ahead. And today, we're just going to do a bonus week. It's week 41, if you want to put it that way. One passage I wasn't able to really get into the way I wanted over these past 40 weeks, and, and I think it's a topic that a lot of us who have been walking with Christ for some time really wrestle with and, and, and ask about. And uh, it's the topic of predestination and free will. You ever struggle with this one? Ask yourself, how does this work if there's a sovereign God who knows everything and yet here we are with, with this certain sense of what appears to be freedom and this certain sense of, of responsibility. How do these two mesh? And, and what I'd like to share with you today is, is a different way of looking at this topic that I think will take it away from the traditional kind of less filling, taste great debates that often happen in this arena and look at it with new eyes instead. And what we're going to do is we're going to use Romans chapter 9 and Romans chapter 10 as a foil or maybe as a platform from which to launch into this and see how the Bible navigates these, these two vitally important topics that strike guys, honestly, at the heart of our salvation. They strike at the heart of life. And so I just hope that um, you would join me on this journey today and because of a topic like this, it, it can get heady, right? Have you ever thought about this for more than like 15 seconds and then like you felt the circuits starting to trip in the brain? We have a universal sign here at Fellowship of Faith for too much, too fast, all right? When we have to approach a topic like this and it starts to come too much, too fast, at any moment you can do this and I will know, all right? Do the sign with me. Put your hands like this. Put them on your head like this and shake like this, all right? At any moment today, if I see that, I will know back off too much, too fast, and will try to regroup and help you navigate what the Bible actually teaches about this. Are you with me? Now, it would seem that in various places of the Bible, it teaches that we are predestined. However, it would also seem that in other places of the Bible, it would teach that we have a sense of free will. Let me just show you a small splattering of passages this morning to frame the debate, okay? Let's start with predestination. Just take a few moments and read these from various New Testament places as they come up. Now, if you were to go and read the Bible, and you were to come across these passages, you could easily walk away with an idea, well, you know what? I I'm saved because God chose me before the foundation of the world. I'm saved because God predestined me. Jesus himself said, you, you didn't choose me, I, I chose you. God, it seems like it's completely in your hands. Do you see it? However, if you were to look in other places, you would see something that say, seems to say something very contrary to what we just read. Just read them as they come. Are you seeing the issue? How do these two worlds 
mesh. How can the Bible on one side say you're saved because God chose you from the foundations of the earth before time began? He selected you. And then turn around and say, on the other hand, things like God wants all people to be saved. God wants you to be saved. God wants no one to perish. And it would seem that if someone does, it's because they haven't repented or believed the good news. Now, my experience has been there's a few basic approaches people have taken to trying to make these two worlds mesh. Number one is this. Just write it off. The Bible contradicts itself. You know, maybe it contradicts itself because it came from different sources. Maybe they didn't really know their stuff well enough. Maybe it just doesn't mesh. And some people have written off not only this, but other parts of the Bible, just almost out of hand is going, see, it contradicts, you can't trust it. Now, the fact that you're in a church today says to me that while some of us here probably struggle with this and maybe believe this and maybe put stock in this, there's some of us here that probably go, no, you know, at some core level, I really do believe that this is God's word, that we can trust it, that it's true, and that it knows what it's talking about. And so what I find the approach for that group of people to be is often this. (laughs) Right? How often do we do that. You don't like it, right? How many times have you seen people talking about the Bible in such a way, two people arguing with each other, both taking scriptural passages and no one listening to the other side? And finally, some people try to harmonize it. Do you know what harmonize means? Well, you got like someone over here going, and you got someone over here going, ah, or something like that, right? And how do you make the tones mesh? Now, we get it in music, but the way it works in literature is, how do I make this come into tune with that so it looks like they actually do fit even though we don't see it on the surface? Do you know what the problem with harmonization is? Harmonization is based on tuning. What do you do when you tune a note? you change it. To make something harmonize, you have to fundamentally change it. My family and I were in St. Louis for the past couple of days. I went to school down there, and as part of our time down there, we showed the kids, you ever do this, the old stomping grounds? It's like, hey, that's where mom and dad used to live, and they're like, oh, great, you know, and then they're back to their, you know what I mean? It was kind of one of those types, you know, of things. One thing we got a chance to do, though, at the seminary that I went to, they have this big honking, like, 100-foot bell tower, all right? And, and, and it's all, like, kind of cordoned off. You can't go up it. But we happened to be walking along when a tour was happening. And have you ever done this when a tour is big enough? You just kind of, you know, right like that and act like you've been with it the whole time? We got to go to the top of the bell tower, despite the fact I lived there for three years. And they brought us up there, and they showed us this carillon of bells. These, these bells, some of them, one of the bells weighed 5,500 pounds. And they told us how every day they literally do a live bell concert where someone will break out a little carillon keyboard and start playing away for 45 minutes for all of the city to hear. Now, you think that there's stage fright when there's like 18 to 20 people in a room and you're playing. Imagine St. Louis for a three-mile radius hearing every note that you get flat. They were telling us how every year 
they have to come in and retune the bells. Do you know how they tune a bell? I mean, you can't, it's not like there's a slide that you pull out, right? It's not like, you know, a little less lip there. I mean, how do you tune a bell? You machine it. You shave metal off. And if it's sharp, you know what you do? You solder metal on. But fundamentally, you're doing the same thing. You're changing the bell. And the danger of harmonization is, doesn't it often work like this? For those of you who are like kind of the, 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 the free will people in the room, don't you do this to the predestination passages? Well, yeah, it says God predestines us, but you know what that means is he knows everything. It doesn't mean he chooses for us. It just means he kind of knows ahead of time, but it really still is me, right? Couldn't you make the argument that you're really kind of playing a little bit? changing that passage. And for those free will people, for you Kelvin people in the room, you predestined people in the room, don't you do the exact same thing? Well, you know, God gives us the ability to choose. God gives us the spirit in infinite measure so that God is actually choosing. This is the danger of harmonization. And neither seems to do justice to what God's word is saying. Now, I'd like to share with you a different way of not only thinking about and reading these passages on free will and predestination, but a way that I think if you can wrap your mind around it, will go so far as to say transform the way you read the Bible. And the way that I want to share with you is called this, a perspectival understanding. Okay, what the heck's that mean? That when the Bible talks in any, any given place, what it is doing is giving a perspective. What it is doing is giving a certain point of view. Have you ever seen this where you talk to five people about a movie? They all went to see it together. And you ask them what it's about, and you get different answers from each of them. And let's just, for the sake of, of argument, say they all liked it on top of it, all right? You still, everyone picks up on a different nuance, a different piece. It's like the classic story of the three blind men who are groping in the dark, and they come across an elephant, except none of them have ever seen an elephant. And one stumbles along, and he feels the trunk, and he starts feeling it and grabbing, and he goes, you know what, an elephant feels a lot like, like a hose or like a snake, and another comes along the foot, you know, and he feels like, 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 like the foot in the leg, and he goes, an elephant feels a lot like, like a tree, like, like, like a trunk. And another comes up along the, the big face, the side of the elephant, and he's like, an elephant feels like a wall. From a point of view, all of them are correct. But at the same time, none of them have the complete picture. Are you with me? The same thing is true when the Bible speaks. See, I think we like to try to reduce single verses to these maxims of life that become these universal general truths that are inviolate, if you are with me, in their own right, instead of a piece of the puzzle, instead of a perspective, instead of a point of view. But here is the thing. Each point of view that the Bible gives is correct. So when it says you're predestined, it means it. Likewise, when it says 
God wants all men to be saved, so repent and believe. It means it. Which says something else. Each is incomplete. Those six or seven passages in the beginning, that none of them give the entire picture. Yet simultaneously, each is absolutely vital to navigating your relationship with God. Have you ever worked on a thousand-piece puzzle only to get to like piece 986 and realize I shouldn't have bought this at a garage sale? (laughs) Every piece is vital, giving a nuance in perspective that without the picture is incomplete. Are you with me? Let me give you a few other examples of how this works. I have a dry erase marker here in my pocket. Now, I want you to tell me what shape, let me do blue side, what shape that looks like. Kind of small, right? But it's a circle, isn't it? All right, here. Because that helped dramatically. Now look at it this way. Is it a circle or is it a rectangle? It's both. Because neither is giving the complete picture. And in a two-dimensional world, trying to use language like rectangle or circle, while correct, is ultimately incomplete. Likewise, sometimes in the Bible, with the limitations of human language, the descriptions and the metaphors and the analogies that it gives, while correct, nonetheless still do not give the complete picture of a cylinder that exists beyond what our words can capture. Here's another way to think about it, and this is for you engineers and scientists in the room. What I'd like to do is talk to you for the next few minutes about physics. All right? Now, I want you to think about two people Sir Isaac Newton, we've heard of this guy, he invented calculus, we hate him forever. And Albert Einstein. I do feel an epic rap battle coming on. <laughs> now, as Newton approaches the universe, he has a certain way of looking at it. As Newton describes how this stuff works and how we can predict what it's going to do, he'll say that the universe is predictable. He'll say that every action has an equal and opposite reaction, which means you can measure what's going to happen, right? He'll say matter is solid, energy is not, they're distinct and defined, one ain't like the other. He'll say things like the universe is objective, time is constant, what it does today is going to happen tomorrow and it doesn't matter what you do in the midst of it. He'll say things uh, like this and it's all driven by the fact and is concerned with what we see, right? I drop an apple, it's going to fall. I shoot a rocket at this trajectory, it's going to hit this elevation at this point in time with these fa- We can predict the universe. But then Albert Einstein comes along a couple hundred years later, and he starts to look at the universe in a very different way. And he says things like this. He says the universe is relative, The universe seems to change depending on our interaction with it. 
He'll say things like, as speed increases, time slows down. He'll say things that at high speeds, matter and energy start to become interchangeable. They're no longer separate, distinct categories. He'll say that one cannot both know the position and momentum of a particle at any given... You can know where it's going, how fast, or you can know where it, where it is, but you can't know both. Right? He would say things, and, and, and people who would base their work on him would say things like, there are no certainties in observation and analysis. Wrap your mind around that. There are no certainties according to his view of the natural world. Only probabilities. And do you know why? Because Einstein is concerned with something else. He's not like Newton, concerned with the world that we see. He's concerned with the world that we do not see. So while Newton is occupying himself talking about If I shoot an arrow, where is it going to land? If I build a bridge, what are the physics that take place? If an apple falls, how fast is it coming? Where is it going to hit? Einstein is concerned more with things at the subatomic level. How do electrons work? What's going on inside a quirk? What's going on inside those those subatomic particles or the supergalactic movements of the universe that are beyond our ability to really perceive? And do you know what the joke is? Both of them are correct. Because when it comes to building a bridge, I'm glad a guy like Newton is here. When it comes to to plotting the trajectory of an arrow or a gunshot or a cannon shot, people have been basing their lives and their work and their strategies on him effectively for years. But when it comes to how things are moving deep inside of you, the smallest of the smallest of the smallest particles, it's a radically different world. All bets are off. Our ability to predict, our ability to figure things out, and the trick of the matter is maintaining that both are true. Let me show you one more example. I want you to look at a picture. Tell me what you see. Who here sees an old lady? Who here sees a young woman? If I was to say that this is a picture of an old lady, would I be correct? Would I be complete? If I was to say this is a picture of a young girl, would I be correct? Would I be complete? And so when the Bible says that you are predestined, is it correct? Yes, but is it complete? Ah, some of you are seeing it now, aren't you? (laughs) Is that a nose or a cheek? Is that an eye or an ear? Is that a profile or an eye that's hidden? You see it now? And the Bible often works the same way. You are predestined before the foundations of the earth. It is true. If you maintain the Bible to be true, there is no getting around it. But it's not complete. God wants you to choose, to repent, to believe. It is absolutely true. But is it complete? 
or are each giving a perspective like Newton and Einstein from a different point of view looking at a different thing. Now, if you take this all in mind, you can take this to the Bible and you will see how passages butt up right against each other. And let's take Romans 9 and 10 as an example again. And I encourage you to follow along. Take a look at Romans 9 with me. Open on up and there's, there's a Bibles under the chairs in front of you if you'd like to hit it. Now, look at just some of the things that Romans 9 has to say. Romans 9 has a heavily, what I will call, Einstein theology, an Einsteinian theology, a theology concerned with what you don't see, a theology concerned with things happening at the subatomic or supragalactic level from God's point of view. Are you with me? Look at some of the things it has to say. It'll say this in Romans 9.11. Before the twins, referring to Jacob and Esau, were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose and election might stand not by works but by him who calls, she, their mom Rachel, was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. You know what it's talking about here? God picks a guy named Abraham. Why'd he pick him? Why didn't he pick you? I don't know. Because God wanted to. He predestined Abraham. He elected Abraham. And then he said, Abraham, your kids are going to carry on my promise. So do you know what Abraham does? Well, kids ain't coming from his wife Sarah anytime soon. So it goes along and he knocks up her maidservant. Well, he does. You know what God does? That's not who I chose. I elected this one. And a son comes later who's called Isaac. And then it happens again. Isaac marries. And they have kids. Jacob marries. And he has kids. And what happens with Isaac's kids is twins are born. Esau and Jacob. Esau is older. Esau should get the birthright. But before they did anything good or bad, with no bearing of who they are, it's not like, well, man, that Esau, man, that dude was just like a... You know? God says, Jacob I chose. Esau, I quote, hated. Jeez, what does that sound like to you? It goes on. Verse 15 and 16. It doesn't depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. You're being chosen by God doesn't depend on you. It's by God's mercy. To which you might say what everyone says right now. My gosh, that's so unfair. How can God even in good conscience judge me if I have nothing to do with it? Do you know what Romans says? Look at the next passage. He has mercy on who he wants to mercy, and he hardens who he wants to harden. You don't like it? You don't like it? Can't God do what he wants? Isn't he God? You ever made art projects? You ever make one that looked really good? Yeah, I've never had that experience either. (laughs) Do you save some and throw some away? Do you keep every art project? Do you keep every gift? 
Do you keep everything you ever made? Or, or do you get rid of... Now, now, has your garbage ever come back to you and said, who are you to throw me away? Seriously? I made you a fool. I could do what I want with you. Right? And isn't Romans 9 saying the exact same thing? And in some, and I will say it this way, some of the scariest language in the Bible, look at verse 22 with me. It says this, what if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the object of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if God, what if God chose to do it? And the question I have for you today is, can you come to terms with it? Can you come to terms that God can do what he wants and is fully justified in doing so, or do you still harbor deep inside that God owes you? Because what God invites you to do is humble yourself completely at his hand, saying, Lord, do with me as you will. Oh, oh. Does faith start to take on a radically different nature at this point? Can you trust a God on those terms? Or does it suddenly start getting a little bit more scary and a little bit more tough and a little bit more in line with what faith actually is when the Bible talks about it? What if God did this? But did I give you the whole picture? Because now look at Romans 10. And out of what seems to be completely the other, like, what? You, what? Look at some of the things that it says, and I will call these Newtonian theology. The perspective from what you and I do see. It'll say things like this in 10.3. The Jews, they didn't know righteousness that comes from God. Why? Because they sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Where does the culpability seem to lie? On God or on them? And it'll say things like this, Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for who? For everyone who's predestined? You see the issue here. What about this? Paul will write, don't go thinking that, you know, you got to go find it somewhere. Like, somehow, how do I get God to elect me? It's like, no, the word is near you. It's right here. It's not up in heaven where you can't find it. It's not down the deep where you can't dig. It's right here. God's right here. And if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that's it. You'll be saved. Anyone who trusts in the Lord will never be put to shame. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. And do you see how in ultimately just hyper-intense close proximity, the Bible will give two perspectives, two different angles, two different points of view that give a limited glance at the exact same thing. And the real trick, the real art, is learning how as a believer in Christ 
to take him at his word completely. The real art of this is learning how do I take God's full counsel and not just the pieces I like? How do I submit myself to what he has to say instead of trying to shave it and tune it to what I want it to say? Because when you come to that place, that's where God starts to take a hold of you and starts to do a real number in shaping your heart and your soul. Maybe a few observations before we close on this. You got to take them both. If you're going to submit and trust God, you've got to take them both. But you've got to remember that neither is giving the complete picture, which means that each side is meant to work, in a sense, as a corrective. Okay? So what that means is this. You know, to you, uh, to you free willers here in the room, who start to kind of operate with a certain sense of bravado, as though there's something so, like, like, you know, you achieved. You made it happen. You did it. You did the hard work. You submitted to God. Wow. Let's stand and marvel at your glow and aura. You, you, you know? What does it mean for you to humble yourself before God and say, without him picking me, I'm, I'm dust in the ground. Without him picking me, I'm, psh, I'm nothing. What does it mean for you who start to think yourself a little superior because you made the choice to go, I am absolutely no better than that atheist who spits in God's face. I'm no better than that heroin addict who's laying in the gutter. I'm no better than that person over there who's done unspeakable things. I am no better. I am in the hands of a merciful God who simply chose me. And for you Calvinists in the room, you, you predestinarians in the room, who, who tend to think you're kind of above the debate, as everyone else talks about how you need to believe and how you need to repent, and you go, ho, 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 I know how it really happens. To come face to face with the fact that God is calling you. And you're not escaping that responsibility. God's looking you in the eye. And he's saying, you repent, you believe. Don't go pawning it off on me. Don't go making an excuse. Don't go going, well, I don't know if I was elect. So, no, God is calling you. For those of you who, who, who kind of hide behind the mantle that since God might elect people, well, why do I have to share? Why do I have to witness? To hear God's call, get in the game. Get in the game and tell other people the good news. See, God gives us pictures. He gives us pieces. And all together, it starts to make a whole. But knowing how to make the feast pieces fit is the heart and soul of what it's all about. You ever try to shove a puzzle piece where it just doesn't fit? You end up with a pretty stupid-looking picture, don't you? But learning how God has 
orchestrated this tapestry and made the pieces fit. And knowing where they go is the real key. Which means also that for those of you in this room right now who torment yourself going, did I really surrender? Did I really repent? Did I really 100% give myself over? And you plague yourself and your faith with doubt. God's got good news to you. I chose you, baby. Stop worrying about what you did or didn't do because I picked you and I don't let go. And likewise, to those of you in this room right now, that are living with an anxiety, did God pick me? Did God choose me? What if I'm not elect? What if God set me apart for destruction? What if, what if, what if? To hear God speaking to you, going, hey, hey, no, 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 listen, listen. Repent. Believe. Just trust me, and, and we got this. Because all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. God's picture is vast, isn't it? It's deep and mysterious and beautiful. There is this passage that ends Paul's talk here in Romans 9 and 10 as he begins to paint this picture of just how big and deep and vast God's working and our participation in this world happened to be. And he says this, with the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgment and his paths beyond tracing out was known his mind who was given that he should repay for from him and through him are all things. To him be glory now and forever. There's an old rabbinic phrase. The rabbis would say this. If when you study the Bible, it does not lead you to a place of wonder and awe, you haven't studied. If when you come to the biblical text, and it doesn't lead you to a deep, vast, beautiful chasm so beyond your understanding, you have not engaged what God really has to say. And my prayer for you today is as we look at how the New Testament unravels God's message to us, it leads you to this place to a God is infinitely beyond your, your understanding, who comes to you in the most personal way and invites you to worship and stand with wonder and awe before him. Guys, I'd like to invite you to rise. I'd like to invite you to make these words, your prayer today. Pray with me.
Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever.